Hey, thanks for joining us for episode 129 of the Jock and Nerd podcast. Uh, we are continuing the small timber celebration along with a place to hang your cape for this episode. It's a celebration of the small press and small heroes and shrinking heroes. Joining us for this small timber episode is creator and writer of an amazing British indie comic book series, Afterlife Inc. John Locke joins us all the way from the UK. And he's also part of Big Punch Studios. These cats have created their own multiverse over there in the UK comic scene. As always, links to everything we talk about in this episode, you can find in the show notes at jockandnerd.com slash 129. Let's get geeky. It's the Jock and Nerd Podcast with your hosts, Anthony and Imran. Hey, what's up, friend? This is the Jock and Nerd Podcast. My name is Imran. My name's Anthony. He's the Jock. And he's the nerd. Thanks for joining us. We got another great uh, small timber episode. Uh, we're talking to comic book creator, publisher, writer, John Locke, who created this comic book, Afterlife Inc., and co-founded Big Punch Studios. I got to stop you right there. Yes. We? It wasn't we. This is a very different interview, listener. This is a one-on-one. It's the nerd and John Locke. And here's why Anthony is not in the interview. I'm going to fully admit, uh, because remember, hashtag undercover asshole, uh, kind of my secret identity from a couple of episodes ago. I booked this thing. And I neglected to uh, tell Anthony about it. Uh, I forgot or it slipped my mind and turned out, Anthony, you had a wedding that day, didn't you? I did. No, yeah, you definitely, no, you you openly booked it, not asking me. No. Just assuming that I would be free when I, I told you I wasn't going to be ah. free, but you still booked it oh, and then shit. asked me if I could join and I'm like, Imran. I'm an ass. But, no, yeah, you're an ass, but it's fine. I'm sure the interview went great. You guys will listen to it uh, shortly. But yeah, yeah, we just need to establish that Imran again is an undercover asshole. <laughs> Hashtag and, undercover asshole. And assumes that his social life is the same as my social life. And I forget that we're there's decades apart between yeah, our habits decades. and lifestyles. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go decades, but yeah, I mean, there is Close. at least a decade or so. Plus, look, the other reason was this was uh, another guy, David Malofsky from A Place to Hang Your Cape. He connected us for Small Timber. The guy had a Kickstarter running. I kind of wanted to, uh, and he's in the UK, so it's got to be done on the weekend. Got to be the weekend. So it's a decent hour, and I wanted to promote his shit during the month of September slash Small Timber. Now, I want to mention one quick thing that I forgot to talk about with him during the interview with John Locke is uh, writer Kieran Gillen, comic book writer. You may know him from he used to write X Men and Thor, and for Marvel now he will be writing the Invincible Iron Man and Young Avengers. Kieran Gillen tweeted about John Locke's book, Afterlife Inc. He said, Afterlife Inc. is one of the best British indie comics. And if you're unaware of it, definitely have a nose. Excited to support volume four. How awesome is that? I was like, this is a big time fucking writer. And he backed the thing. Listener, check out this interview with John Locke. Very interesting. Another guy from the UK indie comic scene. Uh, They're doing a lot of cool stuff out there. And stick around after the interview. We'll be back. I got some bonus audio I'm going to share with you. The Jock and Ned Podcast. John Locke, thanks for joining us on the Jock and Nerd Podcast. All the way from the future in the UK. How's it going, buddy? 
Uh, it's amazing. Uh, we have uh, hoverboards here, but they're coal-powered. I Oh, coal-powered. Jesus, the future sucks, doesn't it? Uh, only in Britain. Everywhere else, it's wonderful. <laughs> Where are you? Are you uh, in London? No, no. Uh, incredibly, uh, I am in the thriving metropolis of Cheltenham, which uh, no one has heard of. Well, we have. Uh, we, I don't know. Our, our, our most uh, our most famous export is uh, private schools. Basically, uh, I think uh, uh, we have Cheltenham Ladies, which is world famous, and it looks like Hogwarts. That's about it. I think Madonna sent her uh, her daughter here, or one of her daughters. Oh, I see. Who's running the, that that town over there? Uh, we have a lot of uh, UK listeners, so they'll know where it is, and they're going to be like, oh, hey, I'm I sorry, don't. yeah, no, that's very, uh, sorry, small-minded of me. I assumed uh, it was mostly a US audience. No, but hello, hello, UK friends. Talking yeah, to the you- world. This is podcasting. It's a global platform. I don't, and I, I am, I'm happy to perform. It's, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so, John, uh, for the listeners here, as part of our ongoing small timber celebration with the awesome people over at A Place to Hang Your Cape, shout out to David Belofsky for, for this hookup, too, as well as, uh, you know, we talked to your buddy last week, Brett Uren, creator of Torso Bear, and he was awesome. And- he, is a, he is a very nice guy, actually, and uh, as is David, and... Uh- I thought um, you did a fine job of pronouncing Brett, sir. <laughs> Except for that one time that was completely like that wasn't even scripted. Like I screwed up and I left it in because, hey, that's life. It happens. Is it, is it wrong? Though? Like when I when I met Brett, my immediate, honestly, my immediate honest reaction was that his surname was pronounced like, uh, like Uren. That's it. That's what I everyone had said that that it sounds like it should be. Brett Uren. That's what I thought too. So yeah, and and he had to say like no, and uh, and it's not it's not urine, by the way. And I was like, oh, it never even crossed my mind because I'm a bit slow sometimes. I never even I never pick up on the most obvious things in front of me. And but clearly, it's something you've been dealing with for a while. Well, yeah, Nothing you know, fun. kids can be cruel. Believe me, John is a writer of uh, and creator of this awesome book called Afterlife Inc. Uh, John and I love that. Uh, this is like a true webcomic in the sense that you could read the whole thing online. Um, and- yeah, well, that's, I mean, this is like a slightly uh, circuitous uh, evolution of a book in that originally I, uh, the first book I kind of uploaded as digital chapters online uh, back in 2011. Wow. Then I kind of, then as we started, you know, printing more books, I, I took it offline. And besides, I think like maybe five people used to look at my old website. It was not, it's not an especially well-made or designed website. Uh, no, no, that's a lie. It's, it's lovely. It just wasn't kind of, I guess, optimized for looking at web comics. User friendly. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It was not especially user friendly. And, and now it's come full circle and I decided to put the entire back catalog up online and I ended up teaching myself how to use WordPress and setting up a nice, hopefully rather sexy looking site. I love it. It looks great. And it's kind of like the new model for comics that, you know, you got to adapt and, uh, and jump in. Uh, why don't you give us uh, what's the convention pitch for uh, Afterlife? Say you're at a, you'd, I'm sure you do conventions. Somebody walks up to your table and they're like, hey, how's it going? What's this book about? And I say in a, in a very well-rehearsed patter, I say uh, Afterlife, I think, is a tale of a con artist named Jack Fortune who dies, discovers an afterlife in chaos and then takes over and runs it like a business. And that's like the super condensed uh, uh, sales cool. pitch. Yeah. And, and then if I'm, if I'm extrapolating, I point out that Jack is known for his trademark 
white suit and a six foot prehensile red tie, which floats through the air of its own accord. And that this all takes place in the Empyrean, which is the great golden city of the dead, a seven tiered mysterious clockwork construct floating in the middle of an otherwise infinite white void. And uh, it's all about the trials and tribulations of trying to modernise the afterlife and overturn uh, literally an uh, eternity of tradition uh, while dealing with the dark secrets at the heart of their world. Uh, that is afterlife, I think. There, there are so many clever ideas in there, and I just love like uh, the entrepreneurism in the afterworld. Uh, before we dive into the characters, I have so many questions about uh, these character designs. Where I want to know, uh, when did you first fall in love with comics? Oh, my life. I mean, I think um, if you ask many, if you ask many people in the UK, um, but we have like this kind of tradition dating back, I don't know, like at least kind of, maybe, maybe even 100 years of like uh, kind of funnies, I guess, kind of like uh, just weekly, very cheap um, little joke humor comics like the Beano and the Dandy. Ah. And for me, it was hard. I mean, everyone, everyone I knew read those growing up. And I, uh, you know, they were quite kind of harmless and innocuous and not really you know, superhero-y or anything like that at all. But I remember like these pivotal, I think maybe like three pivotal moments that kind of turned me onto comics. And the first was when I was in primary school. So I think I must have been about like eight or nine. Uh, it was the start of a new term, sat down, lad next to me. You know, this is a kid you're going to be sitting next to for a whole year. He had a comic mm. with him and it was called Sonic the Comic. Oh. And it was about Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. It was a UK licensed Sonic the Hedgehog ah. comic. And seriously, though, they were given such free reign. And looking back at it now, I think it's amazing what they got away with. It was a, a, a right, main writer-artist duo of Nigel Kitching and Richard Elson. And I know Richard Elson has gone on to illustrate uh, Thor oh, wow. for Marvel, yeah. and he does a lot of 2000 AD work. But they were just massive comic geeks. And seriously, it, Sonic, this daft little blue hedgehog running around went on to become this vast universal time travel multi-dimensional wow really surprisingly dark comic epic and it and it blew my eight-year-old brain i like, can I, imagine yeah like i uh, i remember picking up that first issue from the guy sitting next to me and it was part six of this story called the brotherhood of metallics and i just picked it up in the middle there were tons of characters i didn't recognize and it involved a time travel plot where these evil robots were going back in time to try and kill Dr. Robotnik in the past because he was the one who had developed their self-destruct button in the present. Wow. And that was the only thing stopping them from taking over the world. And it was this epic time. And literally, dude, the impact it had on me is almost impossible to, uh, yeah, I mean, that's to a, overstate. That's a pretty high concept for like a kid's book based off a video game. Uh, I love that they just had free reign with the character and just went nuts with it. I feel like like Sega just like sold the license and then just never checked in on them. It was absolutely <laughs> insane. And I know, and there's a lot of people in the UK for who that was like this formative comic. Huh. Wow. I loved that. I loved that to bits. And me and my friends made, a, made our own rip-off comic in primary school which was just a shameless knockoff like drawn uh, with crayons and pencils but that very much kind of got me hooked on comics at an early age and then like at a later date i remember picking up a, a uk reprint of some marvel comics ah. um and it was uh do you remember heroes reborn i think so it was like 
many people for many people it's kind of like the uh, I guess like the low point of '90s comics. But for me, I I loved every moment of it. It was uh, when they when Marvel tempted back all the image uh, creators oh. who, who defected, and they said, "Well, look, we can come back and work for us, and in return, we'll give you all our big hitters." So they gave like uh, Rob Liefeld got Avengers, uh, Jim Lee got oh heck, I think Jim Lee got Fantastic Four. Uh, you know, they kind of like they split up the main characters like that. This is, and, uh, yeah, 1996-97. Okay. Yeah. And it was insane because the opening part of that, and clearly this became a defining part of my comic reading experience, was picking up stories in the middle of these big sagas and having no idea what was going on and loving it all the more that I didn't understand what was happening. Because it opened with Doctor Doom travelling back in time because Galactus has just blown up and eaten the world and he has 24 hours to warn everyone. And then it ends with everyone dying. Sorry, spoilers. Um, they're, okay. not a- they're not able to save the day. And then Doctor Doom has to go back in time again. And I was instantly, oh, like, this isn't the Spider-Man I recognize from the cartoons. This is weird. And I I fell in love with it. That's interesting that you were just able to, to jump in in the middle. And, uh, you know, that really wasn't a concern back then. Whereas you look now and they're just rebooting things year after year because they're just I afraid. Know. Oh, nobody's going to get it. It drives me mad. I just wish I could go for more than twelve months without renumbering or retitling a comic. It's it's so confusing. It's really it really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, during this time, ninety six, ninety seven, I think I was in college. But yeah, they had. Uh, I see they're reading here. They brought back Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld to uh, uh, do these things. That's pretty cool. Uh, I you know what my story is similar. I, I I can relate it to. We have uh, Archie comic books here. You know, all the kids oh yeah 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 growing up, we were reading Archie, and I still think I learned how to read. Because of Archie comic books, and uh, that's where I fell in love with comics. How, when did you uh, when did you first start attempting to write your own comic? That was uh, ah well, this is this is this is going back to to primary school again, and it was we made um, uh, myself and uh, a few friends who I'm still friends with now, actually, although they grew out of comics, so you know, kind of like in that teenage period. But uh, we made our shameless ripoff of Sonic the comic and oh, right, we called right. it we called it Big Punch ah okay now we see where the name's coming there's from there's a connection yeah and um, we uh, I realised because uh, we all drew uh, we were always always drawing endlessly and um, but I was definitely the worst artist in the three of us <laughs> and uh, I somehow just had these ideas for stories and without even being old enough to really realize the role I was taking on, I started writing the scripts and um, we produced four issues. I mean, like a print run of one per, <laughs> per comic, but uh, stapled yeah. together. And uh, uh, no, actually, actually put in um, all hand drawn, only one copy oh, uh. Uh, put in um, oh, like these kind of cl- like a clear plastic folder thing. Like you'd yeah. have with like these little sleeves in, and we still have them to this day, and they're kind of like practically laminated for pros- uh, prosperity. And um, it's like what you would submit your school reports in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I somehow I ended up becoming the writer, and I guess you could say the rest is history. Early on, but then uh, how was it uh, when, when you wanted to start seriously? You know, doing this as a career. What point uh, was the, at, at what point in your life you're like, you know what, I want to write comics for real. I'm an adult now. <laughs> well, it's kind of weird because everyone, 
as I kind of hinted, like this was something we did in primary school. And when we went across, when we went across secondary school, so kind of like age 11 onwards, uh, kind of running around saying you made like a comic about, uh, imitation hedgehogs, uh, was not, not the best way to uh, ingratiate yourself with a new a new school. No, so not cut. Uh, huh. Okay. I very I very quickly learned to uh, maybe just keep that side of myself quiet, mm. and uh, I would uh, I would just kind of never even writing them down. I just have these always have these stories in my head, and I was just running through scenarios in my brain. And um, at some point, I just made the switch to obviously using human characters rather than. Uh, persisting with with hedgehogs and uh which was really that was like uh discovering uh fire that really just took me to a whole new level <laughs> and um i had uh a little project in my brain which was probably the most teenage most 90s comic you could ever imagine uh entirely born out of all the stuff i loved reading uh called dark force okay and it was uh i think I, i've described it as uh gnarly uh maybe uh a bit, uh, a bit radical. There was a lot of spikes and chains and angels and demons, and it meant a lot to me. But I realised it was almost impossible to describe to people. Mm. Like people would say, "Oh, right, you make you 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 know you want to make comics to you. What's it about?" And after half an hour of me trying to explain, they they kind of get this glazed look in their eye and they go like, "See, it's, it's about everything and nothing at the same time." <laughs> and maybe you should streamline this a bit. Uh, a little more focus. Uh, but I mean, I, you know, I, I was quite um, leaning towards like the sciences at school. And I actually went to, I went to university. I studied biological sciences. That's actually my, my background. That's, and, that's uh, fascinating how you get from biological sciences to writing comic books. How does that happen? This is the thing, because I realized that as much as I love science and I genuinely did, or I wouldn't have spent so many years studying it. The only thing that was kind of making me happy was my writing. Like th- this was the thing that made me feel uh, feel special in my own little way, and I realised that I could probably I was an all right student, but I was never quite you know top of the class, and I realised I could probably spend my entire life kind of doing science, and maybe I could strive and strive and strive, but maybe I don't know if I'd ever really contribute to the field of science or whether I'd end up doing anything wonderful or revolutionary. But in my comics, I kind of felt. Not in a, it's going to sound incredibly pretentious, but I felt like maybe I could make a difference in telling stories sure. because it's like I, I, I would never claim that I could tell the best story, but I, I genuinely felt that I could tell a John Locke story, you know, and no one else in the world would be able to tell a John Locke story. And suddenly that felt like it was like a calling. It was like I just I was always stuck on this path and it would have to be comics one way or another. I mean, actually, actually getting around to that was quite hard and actually working out how to do this and how people actually made comics was, was another hurdle. But I always knew that this was the path I'd have to take. That's, I mean, good for you for, you know, being in tune with yourself and, and knowing that, look, this is, you know, this is what's making me happy. This is what I want to do. Uh, how, what did you learn in biological sciences that you were able to adapt to writing comics? Was there anything in that discipline that, that carried over? Oh man, I think, uh, I, I, some of just weird, weird and wonderful stuff. Like I, I learned more about bees and ants than is probably healthy. Uh, I, I'm still waiting for the opportunity to work that into a story. I think overall, in terms of like a general perspective, I like that science kind of honed, I guess, like a kind of, I don't want to say rational, but maybe like a kind of critical mind. Or curiosity because, also, probably. Yeah, 
exactly. And I, I like the idea of, because I, I very much, I love, um, I love uh, structure. I think that's very important. And I, I, I think that's maybe what it brought me because I think uh, an, uh, an idea can be uh, as wild, as wonderful, as kind of chaotic or insane as, as you could imagine. And, and, and I love the weirder stories. I think the weirder, the more far out the concept, the better. But I think that has to be kind of hung on a strong narrative and a strong structure. And I think maybe, I don't know, I've never really thought about it before, but maybe in like these broad strokes, maybe that scientific background helped me kind of break things down and and kind of angle them into, uh, hopefully reshape them into something with a decent structure. I don't know, but uh, I love, I, I think my brain is full of so many mindless little scientific nuggets. Yeah. It's probably ne- never going to be useless, in, uh, never going to be useful in, in day-to-day life, but if I can work them into a story somewhere, I mean, you can add great little details to stories or and, uh, inspire story ideas. Uh, so I love, you know, I kind of, I like the same kind of comics, the weird, the, I was really drawn to Vertigo, you know, when oh, it man. first started in the 90s. And your book uh, has a great back in the day Vertigo feel, Afterlife. The first uh, I read what was on your website at afterlifeinc.com. Uh, so let's talk about John, Lo- uh, Jack Fortune. Sorry. Let's talk about Jack Fortune <laughs> by John Locke. Not from the show like. Lost. You get the Lost hey. thing at all? Oh, man, I get it all. I, uh, <laughs> once upon a time, everyone was like, oh, man, like uh, John Locke. So Everybody was talking know, about you about 10 years ago or 15 Seriously, years ago. I got jobs based off, like, I, I'd go into interviews for, like, jobs, and they say, like, oh, man, you've got a cool name. I was like, yes, yes, I do. And, uh, I, you know, they hired me. And uh, do you know, um, you know the BBC uh, sh- uh, new uh, Sherlock series yes yes it's awesome with it is very good but did you know that i've learned this the hard way that there is a an internet shorthand for erotic fan fiction featuring sherlock holmes and john watson Mm. called john Locke. oh no i get it (laughs) yeah um my name has been uh it's been a burden and a curse over the years and uh but hey like um you know it it has on occasion yeah, it has on occasion drawn some people over to the table who um, at a convention who may have been expecting something different. But hey, like after the initial misunderstanding, so they, they left made, of a book. So they did like a benefit thing with uh, yeah. uh, Holmes and Watson. Wow, that's a, that has a lot to answer for. Good, uh, good info. Uh, good turn people on to that. Hashtag John Locke. Let's talk about Jack Fortune, though, your lead character. Where So where did this idea come out of the whole idea for Afterlife and Jack Fortune? Well, I mean, uh, in 2007, after I graduated, I, I had the kind of stereotypical crisis of, oh, good grief, what the heck am I going to do with my life? Because I want to be a comic, uh, a comic book writer. I'm qualified as a biologist. How do I kind of square that circle? So I did what any sensible person would do and uh, ran away to Canada. <laughs> and uh, I spent like a, I, I spent like a year kind of moving across the country, ah. working working in coffee shops, working in bookshops, uh, going to conventions. That was like my comics uh, kind of pilgrimage. That's really cool. In a way. Yeah. And I went, I remember going to uh, uh, Toronto comic uh, conventions. I met Matt Fraction, nice. uh, Cameron Stewart, uh, just absorb, try to absorb as much kind of knowledge and, and kind of learning as I could. And I always remember like around this time, I went to a, um, I went to a comic shop in Toronto called The Beguiling. Okay, which which is quite famous. I I learned after the fact it has its own kind of uh, reputation, and I think Neil Gaiman has done a few readings there, that kind of thing. But I remember talking to the manager, like talking to the guy who owned it, and I said, "Hey, 
you know, I was like fresh out of uni. I was like 21 or so. And I was saying like, hey, like uh, I've got this idea. I'm going to make a comic. I'm going to do this. It was always going to, going to, going to. And I had all these plans. And he just kind of, he, he said, I'm going to stop you there. And he looked at me and he said, there is nothing more overrated than a good idea. Hmm. And it <laughs> honestly, like it hit me like a, like a, like a train. I was just kind of, wow. And I was devastated. And I remember thinking, I am so, at first I was like, how dare he, how dare he say yeah. this to me? How dare he kind of like crush my dreams like this? Like, but it actually really struck with me, uh, stuck with me. And I realized that like, yeah, I'm always talking about doing stuff. I'm never, I'm never actually doing, doing it. When, yeah. when am I going to do this? And I also realized, cause I met Cameron Stewart and I was telling him about dark force, which I was still kind of holding a torch for. And he said, uh, it's, it's massive. Man, he was saying, like, this is, this is ridiculous. He said, do not, you need to start small. You need to tell smaller stories. Don't dive in and try and do your 70 issue Sandman. Uh, you wanted to do like know. a big opus. Oh, my life. Yeah. You know, I was kind of full of, like, I was still shaking off that teenage kind of, yeah. like, righteousness and everything. And so I got kind of like knocked down a few pegs and I needed it. Ah. I absolutely needed it. And I thought, I need to start from scratch. So living in this weird kind of, sprawling Toronto shack of a mansion with nine other kind of travelers and the house is kind of falling down around us, but we all just get drunk and have a good time. And I remember coming up with this new idea for a story. And I suddenly was struck by this, this idea that it would be a murder mystery set in the afterlife. Okay. And I have this idea that Jack, he had to be called Jack would be a private investigator in the afterlife. And it was a really, really exciting time because I was just kind of like condensing all these ideas out of nowhere. And I started thinking, and it slowly evolved. And I always knew, almost from the get-go, I don't know if it came to me in a dream or whatever, but I knew that he would have a friend who was made of golden metal. It would be made of like kind of pipes and wires and stuff. And I knew that there would be uh, a giant who was on fire, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and somehow it just completely flipped and became... After I think, and almost like almost immediately from the, the ether, it was, oh, they're going to live. The afterlife is going to be called the Empyrean and it's going to be this kind of Dante esque kind yeah. of tiered structure. And I was like, oh, seven. So it's got to be seven layers and we need seven board members. Oh, wait. And there were once like the afterlife was once ruled by archangels and now there's only one left. And like one of my colleagues at the Starbucks I was working in, she had a Labrador called Lux. Okay. And I, and I had this idea for this character who was utterly, utterly jet black, but had kind of a great big blue mohawk and uh, kind of Hellboy-esque yeah. gauntlets. And I was like, oh man, perfect name for her. And uh, there was like a little um, sachet of sugar. This is, sorry, slightly circuitous, but it's kind of, uh, we sold this, uh, these little, we gave away these little packs of sugar at Starbucks. And one of the symbols on the sugar was of, of like a kind of dancing, like a man with a big broad hat and a guitar strumming. And for some reason I was like, Oh my life, that could be one of the archangels. That could be like one of the most powerful beings in the afterlife. And that led to the creation of, um, Anna Who's another one of the major characters. And slowly it all just kind of, I don't know where it was from. Like I, I with, a, with the character of Jack, I was utterly convinced that, this idea of a guy in a white suit with a really, really long floating red tie had been done. I was utterly convinced that I'd stolen that from someone like subconsciously. And I kept kind of looking around, asking people saying, does this look like something? Have I nicked this unintentionally? Where does this come from? 
and nobody answered. And I thought, well, screw it. I'm going to have to run with it. And uh, it's great. It's so iconic. It's really, you know, it's really clever because you have a lot of ingredients from other things, but that's not, it's, it's combined to be like such a great original concept. Like Jack fortune himself reminds me a little bit of the hellblazer. The whole concept is kind of like Sandman means hellblazer, but there's a little bit of like total recall, a little bit of Chuck Palahniuk fight club. Uh, the tie, uh, also reminds me of like Spawn's cape, but it's also very yes, anime. Yeah. It's also like, and it's so in silhouette, it's iconic. Where I just gotta ask, like, where did that tie idea come from? I wish I could say. I honestly wish I could say, but it was just one of these things which just kind of sprung ah. fully formed. Because I, I'm like, I'm a, I really like characters. I mean, like uh, who or maybe not super. I mean, like we can't really escape superheroes because it's kind of like everything. It's for foundations of all the comics we read really but like um i loved superhero characters because they were so you know fundamentally at their design they're meant to be iconic like they're meant to if you could break a superhero down to just a symbol Mm -hmm. that's fantastic and like i love characters uh who maybe didn't have any powers were just kind of like a regular guy but they had a symbol or one icon that made them instantly recognizable Mm -hmm. i mean like a raw shark is a good example um I think I was reading uh, Atomic Robo and they had uh, the character of Jack Taro who just had like a bandana across his face and like an Omega symbol. And it, it was, it was just uh, something, just something yeah, to make one them stand thing, out. One iconic thing. Yeah. And it's the difference between being, you know, a regular human and being a superhuman. So even though like, obviously um, after I think is not a super superhero comic, but the suit and the tie is kind of like Jack's, it's his costume. Yep, yep. It's, it's his super suit. It's the it's the shield on his chest. It's how he fights the world by having this kind of un, unconquerable, polished uh, silver to uh, silver silver tooth silver tongued image, and that's all part of the package. He's he is corporate, and this is his kind of his mask. The tie is great though, because like as an artist, like I've I've also been illustrator, and you know I've been drawing those superheroes since I was a kid. You love drawing the cape. That's always fun. Now mm. you've taken this tie and allowed the artist to have the same fun they would have with a cape. It's just with the tie. Oh man! Well, thank you. I mean, I it's it's kind of weird. Like I, 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 I am not an artist. No, I, I can I can barely draw to save my life. But I I used to draw a lot for pleasure. Like I really did. I was just designing characters all the time, and I don't know if that kind of stuck with me because I I do not have the skills to draw a comic. <laughs> I wish I did. I honestly wish I did. But all my characters look like, um, oh, like a Da Vinci drawing, you know, kind of like utterly, utterly fixed straight at the camera. Oh yeah. Like okay. arms yeah, stretched yeah. out. Well, but great. The, yeah. If you're, great for character design. Right. Not if, you're, for, if you have an idea and you can quickly flesh out your character for your artist, that just helps them even more. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I drew, I, I kind of, I was able to sketch all my characters and, okay. uh, yeah. Because I, I, I knew, I really knew in my heart of hearts how they had to look. And I, they weren't, certainly not work of arts. I mean, I think I coloured, I scanned them, put them into MS Paint. Oh, boy. And, and coloured them in MS Paint using, uh, you know, just the, the clicking, you know, click fill. And then I was able to give those to actually an artist and say, look, uh, this is how I think they're going to look. Can you, can you help kind of bring them to life? And... I think uh, by certainly before I really knew what I was doing and ha- having a, a very loose, I guess, editorial style, before I even knew I was acting as an editor, I, I would let artists have a lot of freedom. 
And certainly in the original book where we had so many different artists involved. Yeah. Um, you know, Lux, for example, who, uh, who is um, an angel. She is head of security in the afterlife. She was meant to be utterly, utterly black, like, uh, like the void, like a lot of, I can think of quite a cool, uh, several superheroes who do this to good effect. Like Cloak and, uh, from Cloak and Dagger, kind of. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, but she evolved, and the way and, and artists just really enjoyed drawing her in different ways. And she has now evolved over the years to kind of sometimes be represented with stars inside her body. Uh, and yeah, like the universe. I, exactly, and I love it so much that I don't want to. I don't want to mess with that. Like, um, and for example, like Ash, who was the, the first guy to, to illustrate an Afterlife comic. It was his idea to give to give Jack gold eyes, oh, which seemed like a throwaway artistic gesture. And then the moment I looked at it, I was like, "Oh man, like that's that's kind of perfect." For some reason, that was just like the the icing on the cake, and it just kind of helped cement him as a character. I love I love the world you created, and similar to uh, you know Brett Uren's Torso Bear Universe, you have you've broken the first volume down into little stories to you know show the afterlife the way things work the mechanics the characters i love this you said seven seven is such a crazy powerful number a lot of people think it's very lucky but i think in all the big three major religions they believe in like seven levels of heaven don't they well exactly i mean um uh, i think um well, the the um the empyrean is itself based on judaic Mm-hmm. mythology mm-hmm. as i understand it i mean i to be honest it was based on several days of trawling wikipedia <laughs> uh you know the names of the of the levels it's like uh uh shemayim uh raquia shehekim uh shehekim uh oh, makon yeah. makanon yeah, zebul and araboth yeah yeah exactly yeah and um you know very like really kind of like raiding dante or layers I, and i'm just trying to work in sevens wherever i can so the structure of afterlife is just like these floating platforms. I love it. I love how the parts where people think they don't know they're dead and they're just arriving there. And he, uh, he's got, he's got a business card and there's a commercial, uh, the man's just an entrepreneur. And then the different things you throw at it, like the one where there was a technological uh, AI death. I thought that was fascinating. He goes, this is not, this is our first AI, uh, death, uh, resident. Do you ever get the feeling like you may have peaked too soon? I, I'm so proud of that story. And that was like the second <laughs> yeah. one I wrote. Yeah, that and I'm like, oh, damn it. it, it never got better from that point on. I love that story to bits. And um, but I feel like that was my, I feel that that was me trying to be Warren Ellis. That was like yeah. my kind of, um, that was my high concept, short page count kind of experiment. And uh, yeah, I love that story to bits. I absolutely do. I also love the issue where you're cutting back with uh, Alice in Wonderland. Like you wrote, very C.S. Lewisy, like it seemed like he really wrote that. It was so dead on the tone of Alice in Wonderland, and I love the cutting back from the black and white to the the full page, and she's falling, like how she sees the afterlife in her own uh, weird way. Well, thank you. I mean, um, with the first book, uh, I, I may have like inadvertently created the impression that I was uh, literary or in, or in some way kind of intelligent and well read because we had all these weird illusions in the first book, and I, I don't ask me why it worked out that way, but we had. Obviously, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, we had a, a Sherlock Holmes story. We had uh, Arthur Conan Doyle pop uh, yeah, up in the epilogue. Yeah, yeah. And I always—I feel like, oh, good grief! Like I've set the bar quite high here. Like, <laughs> is this meant—is this meant to be like an intelligent story or not? And um, but then, like, we made it up. And by the time we got to the third book, we just had like uh, 
an infestation of uh, stupid sexy vampires and uh, a giant walking factory vampire god kind of rampaging through the city having kaiju-esque battles with oh that's awesome who's our hundred foot tall flaming blue lion so i feel we were successful in throwing any pretensions to uh respectability out the window hey imran hey rug boy wouldn't it be great since we're putting out all these great shows and great content that our listeners could support us in some kind of way, maybe with a website or something? You know what? I got an idea. Hang tight. I'll be right back. Chuggy nerd. All right, listener. We have a virtual tip jar. Wowie zowie. It's called Patreon. Visit jockandnerd.com slash Patreon and you can support the show and help us help you. How you do that? You can make monthly donations, whether it be a dollar, 50 cents, five bucks, or you can donate in one large sum and you get bonus content and it only helps improve the show by getting us on better platforms and better equipment. Fantastic. I hear change jingling in your pocket. <laughs> Don't fucking fuck me over, guys. Do it. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, JT. Goody, Jacob. Whiskey TK. Hey, Jack and Nerds, this is Insert Coin to Continue. So you've already fucked. All right, all right. Everyone needs to know that. That's, that's too fucking air horns. Oh. I disagree. That's yeah, okay. <laughs> what cake? For the Jerk Olympics. <laughs> Just go that first one. I think that's rolling. Please check us out at insertcointcontinue.ca and on Twitter at credit number two continue. Bye. Peace. In a world where so many podcasts offer TV and movie news. Along comes another one filled to the brim with podcasty goodness that is only slightly better at best. Admit it, you're always looking for a new brand of meaningless movie nonsense in your podcast diet. Look for the 365 Flicks podcast on Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher and all good third party podcast apps. You can also swing by the Facebook page. Come join in on the adventures of Kev, a pissy ex-video store clerk. And Chris, a Scottish Whedon Hall. We are your vocal heroes of pissy opinion. We bring you all the latest TV and movie news, reviews and general geeky rants. As well as a bunch of top fives that you really won't care about. So whether you're Team Iron Man or Team Cap, you're Team Batman or Team Superman, drop on by the 365 Flicks podcast, where the Chris vs. Kev Civil War never stops. This is the podcast you're looking for. And I mean, I gotta say, the art, the art is top notch. It's so colorful. It pops. It's so uh, crisp, professional looking. It's it's uh, you know, you, you shed away any kind of independent small press feeling when you look at this stuff. And then I wanted to know. I looked at Big Punch Studios website, and that uh, again eye-popping, so-catching uh, design of the thing. Uh, I love what you guys have put together. How did this all come together for you? Like, I just wanted to write comics, and now you got this whole uh, independent publishing studio. You're making uh, card games and podcasts. This is awesome. It's, well, thank, well uh, thank you kindly. I mean, um, we've been talking about this um, recently. I mean, you know, like the uh, kind of fake it till you make it yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I, I would never like, I'd never want to give the impression that we know what we're doing. We're just kind of making it up as we go along. But the honest truth is, like, it was Big Punch and everything around it was always just uh, a machine we built to help us 
tell the stories and make and make the things we wanted to make. Like Big Punch itself was never the goal. I don't think, I mean, because Big Punch is uh, just to clarify, it is uh, myself. It is uh, Nick Angel, who is uh, an amazing writer and artist, and uh, I guess my kind of comic uh, brother in arms. Uh, with Lucy, my other half, Lucy Brown. Mm-hmm. She is writer, editor, letterer extraordinaire and uh, Alice White who's Nick's other half and uh, Ali is our film and audiovisual expert she's our design wizard she uh, she writes uh, she handles our game stuff so yeah and it and the four of us are obviously really good friends and it's it's two couples and um, we we all work together and for the last year we've all been living together as well so it's incredibly uh, uh, tight-knit group uh, I mean, I, I got my first book out in print in 2012, okay. uh, start of 2012, and we started going to conventions. And I, uh, while going to these conventions, I, um, I bumped into Nick, who was selling a comic of his own making called Seven String. Okay. Which is it's about a world where music is magic and people fight with guitar swords and guitar swords yeah. and there's an evil drum army coming down from the north to take over. And I remember him... Uh, I was go- I, he, he was showing me his book and he opened his comic to a double page spread of the seven gods of this world. And each god represented a different musical genre. And I remember just looking at him going, oh, you, you swine. That's just brilliant. Yeah. Like, I, I, was, I was annoyed at him. I was annoyed at him. I said, like, how could you have made such an amazing idea? And I, I immediately just became a fan of, of Seven String. Yeah. And uh, I bought his book and we parted ways. And then later on when I made, when I made my book, we met up again because I was now exhibiting and selling it. And he bought a copy of my book. And I learned after the fact that he'd, uh, he'd forgotten who I was. Um, so I thought, it's like, oh, hey, it's Nick again. Hello. But he had, he had absolutely no idea who I was. But I, I'd written him like an incredibly gushing email saying like, oh, man, I love Seven String. It's so cool. I love the world building you're doing. I'm trying to do something similar myself. And then after he picked up After I Think, he wrote me a very similar email saying, oh, I love After I Think and all that. And, um, yeah, we just started hanging out at shows. And then, of course, uh, you know, we met each other's uh, significant others. So kind of like Lucy and Ali entered the fold. And then kind of like on our third meeting, just like you do, we decided to go on holiday together. Uh, it was really weird, actually. And we just kind of, uh, we went up and we, uh, we went up to Yorkshire. We stayed in a cottage. We played games and we talked about stories. And we had this daft idea to do a crossover. Yeah. So we did the heavenly chord and it started out as a joke saying like, Oh man, wouldn't it be amazing if we did a parody of the end of Iron Man two, where they find Thor's hammer out in the desert and, uh, the seven string itself, which is this iconic guitar sword. Like what if that crashed into the Imperium? Oh, and we kind of, we, we laughed about it, said, yeah, that'd be daft. Wouldn't that be funny? And then we kind of paused for a minute. And we're like, why don't we do that? Like, why, why not? And we ended up making a whole graphic novel out of it. And to date, it is one of the things I'm most proud of. It is so much fun. I love it. I loved every minute of working on it. It was our kind of love letter to like Silver Age comics and kind of like a tear in the multiverse and just two random characters meeting. That's great. It's called Heavenly Chord. The Heavenly Chord. And you can read it on the website as well. It's all, it's, uh, it's all up at afterlifeink.com. And uh, we made the mistake or the wonderful decision, you could say, to leave it all in canon so without really intending to, we'd create a shared multiverse. Cool. And we both had massive world-building plans for our own stories that went beyond Seven String and After, I think. We had so many other titles we were working on. And we just decided to merge it all. And we became a collective for like six months. Then we became a limited company. And suddenly Big Punch was born. And 
And now we publish uh, Afterlife Inc., we publish Seven String, we publish uh, Cat and Meringue, which is Nick's comic about a cat and a meringue sailing the ocean in a catamaran having Daphne. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean a meringue? Like the food? Like a like yeah, fluffy a, egg a, yolk? He, he's actually a delicious uh, pudding. He's the delicious treat. In a, but I love the the play on words. It's great. Cat oh, Nick is the king of puns. He absolutely <laughs> loves it. And, uh, and yeah, and we do, uh, on top of that, we do a quarterly magazine called uh, Big Punch Magazine or BPM, cool. which is available as a subscription. Uh, so that's like... Uh, 46 full color pages every three months and uh and uh yeah and we've published our first card game as well uh sandwich masters sandwich and masters how do you play sandwich masters what's the objective the objective is to uh, ma- uh make sandwiches to order and earn the most money you can in a limited amount of time while also avoiding the health inspector <laughs> and sabotaging other people's sandwiches oh that's awesome it's like a turn-based card game thingy yeah, it's kind of it's quite fast paced, and uh, you uh, you get order cards. So like uh, cards get dealt onto the table, and it will say like ham and cheese sandwich, and it needs like two bread, uh, a piece of ham, a piece ah, of cheese, yeah. and you have a handful of ingredients, and you start kind of slapping the ingredients down and trying to build a sandwich. And the idea is that the customer is so hungry that they will eat anything; <laughs> they don't care what goes in the sandwich. The right. moment you close it with a slice of bread, you get the money; it's fine. So every ingredient also has an evil counterpart. So if you're after like a quick buck and you don't care about standards, for example, we have beef. We also have raw beef, which is a cow. (laughs) Yeah. We have ham. We have barbed wire ham, which is ham with barbed wire in it. And so you can just slap these ingredients down and it's like a risk. So you can build a sandwich quicker by using bad ingredients. But then if someone plays a health inspector card in front of you, you have to throw away the sandwiches or bribe them. (laughs) <laughs> so you could just throw shit together and hope you don't get caught uh, basically yeah no, people do people that's do. fun we uh uh we did a we kickstarted back in uh back in september and we were successful enough luckily enough to get the game made and uh as we speak it is with some publishers so we may find a home for it we may be able to you know let this baby go out into the world and you know, so wait, you've got it created, but it's not. A, you don't have it like mass produced. Well, that's the thing. I mean, even you know, we're still, uh, you know, we're not massive, and we're still operating on a a kind of indie level. So yeah, we were able to print, you know, better part of a say a thousand units. Okay, but you know, that's not going to last forever. Yeah. And, um, if we want to do another print run, we've got to think. Oh heck, how do we get the money together? Or do we try and find a publisher who has bigger resources than we will ever ever will? or I guess maybe not ever, but certainly bigger resources than we do right now. And then they can take it to a bigger audience and we can start working on the next game, you know, cause we've got kind of games, you know, lined up, that we, we want to wow, develop. That's great. Yeah. It's great uh, diversity because, you know, we talked with Brett also how comic book stores nowadays here in America, anyways, they're 75% card games and board games and Pokemon yeah. and magic and like 25% comic books in the back uh, if you can find them. Oh, I know. And then, of course, it's like, is it a, is it a floppy or is it a, you know, yeah. a graphic Trade, novel? And, right, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, um, I mean, to be fair, this is, these are, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing which we, we think about a lot. And, um, I mean, yeah, like I said, Big Punch is ultimately just a machine that enables us to better tell and distribute our stories. But we have to think very hard about, you know, the audience. So what does the audience want these days? And, you know, do they care about, you know, 
you know, staple stapled comics? Do they do they care about slimline books or do they prefer graphic novels? You know, do they prefer digital content or do they want you know something nice and physical? So we don't really see ourselves as business people at all, but we're just we're trying to be savvy. We're trying to think because you know comics are hard. You know, actually, no, absolutely, kind of like making a living in comics is notoriously difficult. So we're always trying to think of a like a new direction to take our stuff in. Uh, it's dude, it's fantastic, and the time is right for this kind of thing. You guys, I think you're using all your resources well. I myself, in the early 2000s, was part of this really small company called Shadowfish Comics when we were trying to produce. Oh wow, cool! Independent name. comics, yeah, it was a really great name. It was, uh, and uh, we are we had the guy running it splurge to buy get a table. I think it was at Wizard World back then, and we oh, were wow, like, yeah. yeah, and it was <laughs> it was very expensive. We were instead of being an artist alley, he's like, you know what, fuck it, we're gonna be right. With Marvel, with DC, we're going to go right up there. <laughs> so he kind of blew it all on this one table. And it was a lot of fun. We did a lot of the little conventions. But this is pre-webcomic, pre-any social media. It was so hard to, uh, yeah. you know, all your time. But nowadays, I feel like uh, there's with Kickstarters, with Patreons, with digital comics, with social media, you guys have a really cozy indie UK comic scene out there. Everybody knows each other. Everybody's supporting each other's Kickstarters. It's just such a great community, I'm noticing. It is kind of, it certainly is wonderful. And I mean, in many ways, I don't think I could have found a better time to be getting into comics. Like, I mean, circa, yeah. circa 2011, when I made, started making my first book, there was suddenly this like explosion of do-it-yourself tools. You yeah. know, suddenly like there were small printers that like an indie creator could turn to. There was, you could, you know, you could like produce you know, I still hold it up. You could produce kind of work of equal quality to the big two and produce books which looked good. Like maybe you're only printing like a few hundred at a time, but, you know, there's no reason that just because something is indie, it has to look, I guess, kind of amateur right. in any way. Right. Yeah, like, and it's like, you know, we always wanted to strive to a certain level of quality. I think, I think um, with that kind of, I guess, like a democratization yep. of, uh, I guess, professional level production, uh, it's it's both like a blessing and a curse because it's wonderful because now I, I say just about anyone can make a great looking book. Uh, the the flip side is that now everyone is making great looking books. And yep. how do you how do you stand out? That's that's probably the biggest the biggest hurdle. That's and I think the big change is the, you know the digital revolution and not just comic books across all mediums. You know any kind of content producer whether you're making a podcast or music or movies the barrier for entry is like so low. And it's very easy to get the quality up there, and it's it's very exciting. Just like ourselves, we can we can put out a show. It sounds good. Now the flip side, like you said, there's tons of shit out there, and yeah. having it rise to the top, it's just you got to uh, just focus on the content more. And unfortunately, a little bit the promotion, which is the part that like wow, that's draining to constantly be promoted. That is that is the really hard part. I mean. You have to be a jack of all trades. This yep. is, I, I to, be, to be fair, I often feel like everything I've done or achieved in comics has been a, a reaction to the fact that all I ever wanted was for someone to do it for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I had this dream, this naive dream as a kid that the way you got started as a writer was to walk up, walk into a convention with like a kind of hand, you know, a printed script. You ran off on your home printer, yeah. kind of waving it above the air saying, I've got a script. Who wants to buy it? And, yeah. and suddenly everyone would leap forward and suddenly your career would begin. But of course it, it never worked that way. And I had to learn that like, I never wanted to be a self publisher, but suddenly I had to realize that, Oh heck, no one's going to do it for me. Now 
I've got to, I've got to get on it. You know, I've got to start talking to artists. I've got to, you know, save up from my day job, find some money to, you know, start paying artists, that kind of thing, you know, and that's how I got started. That was the, that was the hurdle. You know, everyone now has to act as their own like media publishing company. Oh my life. Yeah. You have to be your own press agent, your own, uh, you have to negotiate with printers. You've got to run your social media account. It's exhausting. Like, it is. You'll learn a lot, but it, it is very exhausting. I do. like. I, I mean, like, I do less time writing than I do everything else. You know, the kind of thing I define myself by kind of comes secondary now. There's, uh, you know, and there's that 80-20 rule that I try to remember where, you know, 80% of the time you want to focus on the actual thing you're making. And then 20% of the time on all the other crap, the promotion. But... Sometimes that 20% needs a lot more attention. Yeah, man. And you've got to sleep at some point as well. That, <laughs> that's the hard part. I've, uh, I'm terrible for kind of running myself into the ground. Like uh, every time we've run a major crowdfunding project, I've almost like clockwork fallen ill. It's, but it's, that's it's the hustle, man. If you're not uncomfortable, then you're not doing something right. That's probably a good point, right? actually. Yeah, like I'd rather be pushing, yes. pushing some boundaries than you know, playing it safe. So I saw this article on your uh, site that you wrote uh, at Pipe Dream Comics about digital comics. I thought it was called Why oh, yeah. I Love Digital Comics. Very interesting because I've always, uh, you know, I'm an old school guy. I love, I'm surrounded by boxes of actual printed single issues. But I see the benefit and the beauty of like reading comics on an iPad. Like the colors, they, they're so, they pop, they're bright. Uh, it's, it doesn't take up any space, but you mentioned something I didn't think of is that the boon for independent creators to be able to now have their books right up there in comic comicsology next to the Marvel and DC and boom, right there you can submit and it's there. That's amazing that you could do that now. You could never do that before. No, it's fantastic. I mean, um, yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I mean, I wrote that like, Oh gosh, I mean, at, at least a year ago, if not, <laughs> if not two years ago. And, um, yeah, I'm trying to think if things have changed. Like, I do, I do stand by it. Like, it is, it is fantastic. And I think this guy kind of touches upon the whole uh, democratization, which is yeah. actually really hard to say. Is it? <laughs> but it's like um, print costs are always going to be prohibitive. This is this is the problem. And like, if we could make the leap from printing, say, yeah, which is kind of actually one of the reasons we properly incorporated as a company, you know, and kind of you know start treating things like a professional business because well you know seemingly like a professional business semi-professional business where um you know we wanted to make that leap from printing say maybe hundreds to printing say thousands you know for kind of like because you know otherwise we we you're always going to be at at best breaking even or at worst running a loss like it's this is the hard part it's um i often thought it'd be a lot easier if we cared a bit less you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if if we didn't want to put out these high quality products, I think I think it'd be a, it would be a bit easier. But ultimately, I guess the content I think as as you hinted at is is, is the most important thing. And you know, it's it's something we're kind of looking at now, like kind of actually putting out some stuff purely digitally. Sure. You know, because you know the print costs are some of the biggest hurdles. And if if someone in Australia can download your comic in a second. Then you know, rather than having to, you know, come across your book or have it shipped out, that's got to be good. But uh, then this goes with the the flip side of it's wonderful being on Comicsology. It's wonderful having a digital book that anyone in the world can download, but they have to know about it. This is the challenge. It's actually promoting it, getting the word out there. Well, how do you? That's the thing is, how do you transition 
an online reader to, first of all, you could put this up and you could see if there's interest and demand before you even think about printing it. And so if the demand is there, you're like, okay, I think I can sell these. But then if you're offering this, how do you transition from someone from downloading digitally to actually buying a hard copy these days? Well, this is a weird thing. I mean, we kind of like, I was listening to a, a interesting podcast and from a decade ago, nearly oh. a decade ago about, about web comics. And you know, recently, like we've transitioned by putting after I think, back online okay. in, in its entirety. Yeah. And I know the new material is going to go there as well because it, it runs kind of against the kind of logical thinking where you might think if something is available for free online, why would anyone ever buy it in person? You know, you think, well, I, it's there on my computer. Like, why would I get a book? But our stuff has always been print-based first and foremost. Like, we, we've always kind of, like, started by selling our books at conventions and conventions have always been for the longest time, our kind of bread and butter. Like we, we'd go to a show and we sell, we sell books and there was an audience for it. And it was stuff that people had never seen online. They'd never kind of encountered it before, but it was by coming to shows, seeing our stuff, talking to us, like, you know, me holding people hostage with my words, like I'm kind of doing to you now, just yeah. bombarding you with yeah. waffling nonsense over and over again. And eventually they'd be like, oh man, this sounds cool. I'll check it out. And that was like 90% of our income. I was kind uh, of like, oh, this is grand. It's yeah. talking to people. It's physical sales. So now we're kind of coming at it backwards where we're kind of thinking in an age where, you know, Patreon is very, very popular. Patreon has opened like a lot of doors for people. Patreon support you know lends itself more to people who are regularly producing stuff yeah online it's a, and you know yeah and, and so we're kind of thinking we have great content why can't we do both like we i mean and this is the thing everything is a double-edged sword like we love conventions but we're kind of dependent on them yeah because we make so many so much of our income from going to conventions so we're thinking we're talking about it, like how can we break the tyranny in a way of needing conventions because that's only as, you know, that's only as reliable as a convention lasts or a convention continues to draw in a good crowd. I mean, we started to notice that maybe audiences are changing slightly at conventions and yeah, yeah, we've noticed something we've been noticing over the last year. It seems to be more about going to the show and enjoying like a, like the carnival has come to town rather than actually going there to to pick up stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that's what kind of what's annoyed me too about it's just being seen. It's all the cosplay yeah. cats. They want to show, they want people to take pictures of them. They want to be seen and they're not spending any money well, on this is any true. comic books. Yeah, no, and I feel like I I mean, I should say like I absolutely love cosplay. Like it it is like uh, it's for color, it's it's wonderful. But I think we can't escape the fact that, you know, audiences are I would say demo uh, Demographically, yeah, the demographic is shifting. They're getting kind of like younger, I would say. And we're getting an audience at Conventics now, which are kind of have grown up on the internet, uh, where content is free, where content is not something you you buy. And it's it's just a slightly different idea about what a convention is now. That's the slippery slope with the digital comics is that in a way... You know, you want to give stuff out for free to hook them, of course, but then you're also kind of devaluing your own work unintentionally. Uh, it's so, so you really got to think. Well, maybe this is maybe this is where it comes around again with, um, say, stuff like Patreon, because I think there's quite a strong 
delineation between, say, like a, a web comic creator and a comic book creator, which is what we're trying, which is what we've always been. We've always been in that second camp because we've pr- primarily released our content uh, physically. Okay. Now the the issue with trying to grow in that area is that we. You know, it's, it's much harder for us, say, to get our books into stores worldwide. You know, we could go down the Diamond route, but then, of course, Diamond, the percentages are not always in your favour. You Screw up. up. Yeah, don't go. Yeah. You could run a loss. You know, it's time, it's effort, it's resources. Um, we're doing what we can. Yeah, we're always exploring new avenues. But if we're online, we can reach. And that's the thing. Like, we have a good physical audience who come to shows. Yeah. We we want to really, really grow our kind of online audience because mm. our, our logic is, and again, this is where it runs slightly counter to what you might expect. We're finding that if people read your stuff online and enjoy it and appreciate it, and they can go through the back catalogue, they can get to know the characters, they can love it, they can share it, they can say, hey, I love this webcomic, I love these characters, you can check it out here too. We're starting to see now where maybe this is, the growth of like a more, I don't know, socially conscious, aware kind of consume, online consumer base. But people are now supporting a lot of their creators online. Yeah. And so now when people go to a show, we're thinking we, we don't want to be so reliant on people discovering us. There. We want people to come over and go, hey, that's Afterlife Inc. I love you guys online. I'd like to get the trade paperback, that kind of thing. So... That's kind of what we're thinking because we, we worry that if we if we remain too dependent on conventions and and entirely just the word of mouth of, of spreading the word it shows, we could suffer if conventions are going the way they seem to be, which yeah. is where less and less sales on the weekend. I mean, I saw a video. I think I think it was your Patreon video, and it showed your convention booth, and you guys seem to have a pretty big footprint. It looked very impressive. Like it was a big. Uh, lots of books, big square, very colorful. Well, thank you. I mean, I mean, again, fake it till you make it. Like yeah. we, uh, we've always been in the comic village. Uh, certainly, in the last couple of years, we have, on rare occasions, we don't do it every show, but we have made the leap into a booth, and uh, that's been wonderful. And and it's been nice to be able to have kind of organically reached a point where we're like, hey, for this show, for this big London show, we have uh, MCM London, which yeah. is like. It's the biggest one on our calendar. And we're able to say, hey, we know this is a massive show. There's going to be 200,000 people through the doors this weekend. We can, let's go for that booth. Let's go for a bigger presence. It's a good risk. It's a good risk and it'll pay off. I mean, um, you know, you work your way up to it. No, you're right. You can't, you need to be control, be in control of your own destiny there, not in the conventions and this digital word of mouth. That's what everybody is pushing for is just, Get, getting something maybe something goes viral you then you know you getting yeah. people to tell their friends and i and i and again this is this is the part where like i listen to myself talking and i realize i like oh grief i probably sound like the most cynical businessman you can imagine but like this is just what we're doing to survive if we keep doing the same thing over and over again we can't blame ourselves if things go bad and it's like we want to tell stories that's the passion. Like we want to make these comics a reality. And so to do that, we kind of have to be responsible and kind of like, you know, try and treat our company with a bit of self-respect and think, how are we, how are we going to treat it right? How are we going to protect it? How are we going to 
keep ourselves in this wonderful position where we can tell stories. And I think um, all this kind of business junk has come secondary and it's something we've had to pick up, even though it was something we never really wanted to. But at the core of it is this idea that we care massively about the quality of our books. No, and, and, and it shows, man, the art, the, it's top notch, the, the, the quality is top notch, but it's smart. You got, that's the problem artists have. And I had the same thing. It's like, you can't, you're not a businessman. You just want to make the art. And the, the other side, the business end of creating art uh, requires a very specific set of skills, you know? <laughs> you have to be the Liam Neeson of the, uh, of the art world. A little bit. You got to be pushy. You just got to, you can't be afraid to put yourself out there. So you guys, I love how you're running a Kickstarter, you're using Kickstarter and Patreon. We've talked about Patreon. We also have Patreon. We kind of talk about it as like an exclusive fan club, mm-hmm. you know, where you get uh, bonus audio and stuff. But, but for people who don't know, Kickstarter is more like a one-time deal. Patreon's great for the ongoing, like you said, webcomic. Um, what- Any content which is regularly, regularly updating, I think Patreon is perfect. Podcasts, videos, games, comics, exactly. yeah. Uh, and there's tons of people there. What, uh, what kind of difference in strategy have you found between the Kickstarter and the Patreon? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because I don't feel it's like our Patreon is a smaller aspect of what we do, and we're hoping that with as we start kind of producing more digital content, maybe that could become more of a thing. But we uh, Patreon is mostly, in fact, primarily, I would say, used to as um, as part of our BPM, as part of our quarterly magazine. Ah, okay. So we have uh, on our website, you can go and you can subscribe to BPM, and you can do that directly. So we run a subscription service through uh, Moonclerk and th- uh, powered by Stripe. So, you know, f- every three quarters, uh, you know, the payment comes out. We post people a magazine. But we also use Patreon as a way to kind of supplement that while also getting uh, a few extras for our backers. So, you know, we say to people, hey, do you, you know, do you want to receive like, uh, oh, what was it, like nearly 180 pages of comic through the post every year? then, hey, you can either subscribe, which is great, or if you want to back us on Patreon for the same amount, give or take, um, you know, you get the magazine, but you also get a few extras. So you get free downloads of all our podcasts, you get behind-the-scenes stuff, that kind of thing. So at the moment, they're both kind of like, um, you know, they're both kind of supporting each other. That's great. Ways. Yeah. No, that's smart. Uh, does the BPM, the subscription, is that like a physical comic or is that you get a... Physical comic, yeah. You actually get, wow, you get it mailed old school, right? Scale old school, mail. yeah, scale oh, mail, yeah. We even have a few going across to the uh, to the US as well. So we do we do go global. Right on. And, uh, you know, I did have a question about the, all the comics under Big Punch Comics. You are, So are they all in the same universe then? If you, you Yes. Know, they really yeah. are. So <laughs> they really are, yeah. and Orb, all these things technically exist. Wow, that's awesome. In the same universe. In fact, uh, we really wanted it to be like a, a multiverse in your pocket. And uh, so that's, that's rather, awesome. rather than having to pick up like 20 different titles to uh, understand what's happening. But yeah, indeed, uh, Cuckoo's, uh, in fact, by its very concept, it's about characters who can move between universes. So... Uh, that's very integral to it. Uh, you know, Orb uh, is its own thing. Uh, 99 Swords is its own thing. But if you look in the background, there are some characters who have already popped up in every title. And even uh, even like in Seven String and After I Think, which are our two kind of like, I don't know, the founding fathers, the two big brothers of, of all right. our books. There's, you know, the stuff that's happening in BPM is going to have implications for them and vice versa. 
And wow. That's cool. Yeah, like we're nothing if not ambitious. And um, we're coming to the end of year two of, um, of BPM. And uh, I guess all I can say is that things are really going to kick off in year four. So <laughs> wow. we've got, we have plans which will be, shall we say, title spanning. So very exciting. Very exciting. Great. No, the, the multiverse is great. What about, you guys ever thought about crossovers with other independent properties? Like, I know your buddies with Brett, you're in. Uh, what, yes. what would happen if Jack uh, runs into Torso Bear at some point? To be fair, like I, man, I have no idea. I mean, to be fair, I would, I would love to be involved in in uh, Torso Bear. Maybe me and Brett should uh, should talk about that at some point. But I feel like the one, the one downside to forming Big Punch is that we've kind of like uh, almost closed the door in a way yeah, to closed, other, right? Because we have like such a tight little internal mythology now. Where I know for a fact, like we did turn down one opportunity to. Be, be involved in like a bigger kind of crossover because we were like you know we're so sorry guys it's simply that we, we're kind of doing our own little kind of thing here and and we if like say jack appears in another comic that's gonna kind of people are gonna be like oh does that make that part of the big punch multiverse as well that kind of thing so we're, we're trying to keep just like a little delineation there that's got interesting to, yeah which has got to say that like out of uh, you know kind of outside of canon we couldn't have our characters kind of having a bit of fun in another comic but you kind of, yeah, you kind of closed yourself off into your little universe. <laughs> universe. Double-edged, double-edged sword. That's probably going to be like the, uh, that's probably going to be the subtitle of this episode. It's simply, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a pro and a con to everything. So you got your Kickstarter for uh, Afterlife Inc. Volume 4, and it's winding down. You guys seem to be doing good. How big, how big are these volumes? How many pages are these? Uh, well, book four is going to be our biggest uh, one yet at 172 pages. Wow. And that's kind of excluding the Book of Life, which was a great big hardback we kickstarted back in 2014, which was collecting books one, two and three of Afterlife, I think. And it weighed about two kilos and had about nearly 400 pages in it. It was, you know, tremendous, tremendously heavy and dangerous. I always like a book you could kill a man with. Yeah, um, that's a nice coffee table book. Yeah, no, but man, I love that to bits. But no, um, Afterlife, I think, volume four is... Again, I am trying to make the kind of comics I grew up reading as a kid. And so I grew up reading Marvel, DC, you know, kind of uh, Vertigo, uh, a few image trades. And it was always like, yeah, six issues, six times, 22. And there's a graphic novel. And so, yeah, Man Made God is a six chapter storyline. Each chapter is 22 pages. And with a few extras thrown in, that takes to 172 for the listener man i just if you guys are looking for something different if you're uh burnt out on mainstream superhero comics perhaps check out everything these guys do because the art is top-notch the writing is great the ideas are awesome i really enjoyed uh reading after uh the afterlife that you have up uh because it sucked me in and just such clever deep concepts and uh you know and heaven and hell themes seem to be very popular these days with they really do you know, they really do yeah with outcast and your preacher and uh constantine but i always i love all that stuff so you know what i love that you're using patreon and kickstarter because your kickstarter is winding down now I, when this show comes out you know, uh, this is going to be out for a while. People aren't going to have a chance to back it, perhaps. But the Patreon is always there, so they can always go and support you ongoing. Hey, well, um, and, and if they if they wanted to, that would genuinely mean the world because we're we're only going to be we're only going to be uh, kind of amping up everything we do 
on the Patreon front. It's certainly everything that people can get by backing us. And we certainly hope that. We certainly hope it's a nice enough deal at the moment if you want to become a Patreon and want to become a patron of us, but it's only going to get better. We're really going to expand the package we offer. So, yeah, we we hope. We hope it's an attractive package. And then will there be uh, volume five? You, uh, what's, what's next? Oh, round? man, like, I'm going to be doing this till I'm, you know, I'm old and grey. No, right, there right will on. be... If I can bring Afterlife Inc. in at nine volumes, I will consider it concise. Like, I, I've always known where the series was going to end. I've always had a definite end in okay, mind. Okay, good. Originally, it was going to yeah. be six. It was going to be six books. Yeah. It was going to be the rise and fall of Afterlife Inc. There was going to be a, an absolute ending, and it was going to break my heart, but I was going to do it. And then I got sidetracked, and I made one book, and I made two books, and I made three books, which were never part of the original plan. So with book four, I finally reached a point where, like, I needed to train. I needed to get better as a writer. And I realized that now I've reached a point where I'm ready to start telling the main story arc of After I Think. And you were just warming up this whole time. I had to, yeah. I felt like I was playing with fire. Like, I couldn't trust myself until I was... <laughs> I was good enough to make a start. And yeah, with book four, this is where it begins. And uh, yeah, I, I hope, uh, I hope, you know, a lot of exciting stuff will start with um, Man Made God, book four. And yeah, it could really, really kickstart the rest of the series. Uh, John, for the listener, why don't you give out, uh, plug all the sites and URLs where you want the listener to come check you out and say hello. Hey, well, thank you kindly. Uh, I would say uh, the hub for everything we do, be it our games, our podcasts, our magazines or our graphic novels is www.bigpunchstudios.com uh spelt exactly as it sounds and from there you can find a link to everything including our store uh but yeah if you want to if you want to read after i think um the entire backstory to date is available to read online at www.afterlife-inc.com and yeah we are absolutely running a kickstarter at the moment i don't know if you're all I don't know if it will still be running by the time you hear this, but links are on all our websites. And uh, yeah, I just I hope you like what you see because it's a it's an absolute joy to make, but it's an even greater joy to know that people enjoy it. So yeah, I hope you like. I'll put all the links in the show notes for the listener, but listener, just go check it out, and you will you'll see that you're it's a fun world to uh, explore everything that Big Punch does. John Locke, not from Lost. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, for we're gonna we're uh spread the word about uh, afterlife and big punch and turn people on to this great little UK. I got to thank David Malofsky, man, for turning me on because uh, talking to Brett and uh, Torso Bear and now talking to you. Uh, it's just what a great community, and it's so exciting that you guys are producing such great content. And I just uh, you know people just need to go find it, go get it, go tell somebody, share it, get it out there. And, and I, I can't thank you enough for all the kind words. It's been a genuine pleasure. The Jock and Nerd Podcast. I can't thank John Locke enough. And not John Locke from Lost. He gets that a lot. John Locke from the UK, creator of Afterlife, Inc., part of Big Punch Studios. Uh, the guy's a very pleasant person. And I'll tell you what, Anthony, uh, late last night, I just got up and after talking to Brett Uren and John Locke and... I love uh, discovering this UK indie comic scene. I went and I backed both Kickstarters, the Torso Bear and Afterlife. Dirty nerd, geek boner. I backed it, so now I will get uh, the digital, uh, all the volumes of both books digitally. I backed it to that level. 
But I got an update. This just, I saw this today, as of today, Thursday, September 22nd. John Locke posted, hey, gang. So I was in the process of writing another update, possibly with another character profile thrown in on this Kickstarter, when completely out of the blue, I noticed something rather cool. Afterlife Inc. Volume 4 is 100% funded. Oh, shit. There you go. Congrats. He, he hit his fucking thing. Is uh, it was yeah. So, you know, this show, I was afraid it wasn't going to come out in time for people to, you know, check out his Kickstarter, but it doesn't matter. He fucking, he made it. And Volume 4 will be coming out of Afterlife Inc. It's very cool. And I don't know if my, look, last night, I don't know if my little couple of bucks helped push it over. But hey, I'm gonna think that it. I, I would. I would take credit for it. <laughs> I'd be like, "Yeah, fuck yeah, I'm the one that I, I I funded this. I I did it. I did it. Hashtag undercover asshole. Oh, you shit. can. You should tweet that you did it. Like that you got it funded. Well, I tweeted out that I backed you it. Should, you should tweet out that you like fund. You got your project funded. Like you should just take full. Ownership. I'm taking all the credit. Yeah. I really got to work on my undercover asshole persona. I'm taking all the credit. Oh, we, we take the credit, even though our show hasn't come out yet and it's already funded. I think you should take the credit. You were even a part to. of it. You didn't do yeah. shit. And Anthony, listen, we did a great job getting Afterlife Inc. funded, Anthony. We did. We did a fantastic <laughs> job. Me me personally, I think I did the best job promoting this shit. <laughs> okay, check it out. I said before. I should. I don't. I mean, like his thing i don't mean it's shit it's not shit it's quite good the art is fantastic check it out anyways uh visit the show notes for this episode you'll find links to all of it you can actually read the whole comic book for free he put up like the first two three versions up as a web comic uh it's a lot of fun but i mentioned i was going to share some bonus audio and before at the beginning of our conversation john and i we were talking about accents uh, and he said he had listened to the brett urine show he he really liked it he was like oh it was a great show and he had some questions and observations about our accents, Anthony. Oh, yeah? Check it out. Uh, I was thinking, like, I love, uh, and sorry, it's going to be some of the most stupidly British things to say in the world, but I love both your accents uh, <laughs> for kind of like different reasons. And I wanted to ask because I've been listening to, I've been listening to a lot of uh, American podcasts yeah. lately. Yeah. And uh, Anthony's, uh, I'm getting it right, it is Anthony, yeah. uh, his, his accent reminded me of a Kevin Smith movie. <laughs> and I, I, and, um, Randall from Clerks, he sounded just like Randall. Oh, Randall. Huh. I never, Ooh, I'm going to have to do some kind of like a sound comparison clip. I never, uh, that didn't occur to me. Is uh, he from, is he from New Jersey? No, <laughs> Anthony is from the Midwest. Oh, okay. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, is, are you from Philadelphia? Nope. I, where I was born in Chicago. I am so sorry. I, I've been listening to, um, I've been listening to an uh, old podcast uh, called Web Comics Weekly. Yes. And uh, Brad Geiger, uh, who's on that, and I think he's the creator of uh, the webcomic Evil Inc., uh, he had, his laugh was just like yours. And I remember, I just, all I could see were like, these kind of comparisons. I was like, oh, man, I have to ask it. And I'm going to sound like an idiot when I ask. No, but. that's very interesting. So we, uh, the point is, what's hilarious to discover is that they can't discern our fucking accents just like we think all of their accents are the same like cockney or like london like whatever it's just british uh and i always think of uh three six five flicks kevin and chris always mention how people they they think both of them are english or both of them are scottish or they can you can't figure out which one is scottish which it all sounds the same to us fucking uh yankees yeah i it's funny that they thought my accent was east coast i'm uh actually had some visitors from Vancouver. Yeah. And they were making fun of my accent too. They were like, You like you 
over enunciate your A's. You Chicago. <laughs> that's that's Ac- Midwest. Accent. Yeah. I say accent. Yeah. They're like, no, accent. it's accent. No, it's accent. Accent. That's the Midwest accent. Yeah. Do like you, you always go to the uh, air. Are you familiar with uh, Randall from Clerks? No, I have not. I've never seen Clerks. Are you kind of, you kind. I could see how he kind of gets that. Randall's I sound like Randall. Randall's a very snarky and. Uh, I was, I was oh. hoping you had a, a clip of Randall. Well, I may. Ah, that's all bullshit, man. You know what the real problem here is? I was born. You should shit or get off the pot. I should shit or get off the pot. Yeah, you should shit or get off the pot. What the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about this thing you have, this inability to improve your station in life. Fuck you. It's true, man. You sit there and blame life for dealing you a cruddy hand. Never once. All right, we're good. Do you think you sound like him? Uh, not particularly. Not particularly. I mean, I, I think my voice is a little deeper. Yeah. Um, He's got kind of like a whine to his voice, and he's got like a... Like talking, man. Like we're talking. Yeah. Like he's got the little bit more of the east Co- east coast vibe, where I'm definitely more a little bit Midwest. There's um, a, yeah, there's a little. But I guess, I guess if you're if yeah. you're not from here, right? You could maybe say that mine and him are similar. I like that observation. I've uh, never heard anybody say that before. I mean, come on, man. You talk. You're <laughs> talking here, man. So that's li- how you sound, <laughs> listener. For you, that little snippet is part of. A longer clip where we do talk about accents. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put that up free at our fan club page so you can check it out. Jockinner.com slash Patreon. It'll be a free clip. If you like it, hit that become a patron button. I can't talk today. And you will get access to the post show, which is some more bonus audio with me and John Locke, where he talks about uh, what he's reading, what comic books he's reading, and he recommends some really good books. That's going to be exclusive for fan club members, jockandnerd.com slash Patreon, where there is now an RSS feed. You can grab this RSS URL, put it in your iPod or any pod app, pod catcher, and you will get the Jock and Nerd exclusive fan club feed for being a patron on Patreon, where you can easily listen to all of the audio that we post. Uh, David Malofsky has noticed this. He tweeted at us. The RSS feature on the Patreon makes it so much easier to listen. Hashtag this. Jocktastic. So now there's like a true uh, exclusive feed for audio where it's going to have all. And there's like seven hours of shit in there. So just consider supporting the show. Join the fan club and you're going to get cool shit. Absolutely. Uh, If you want to contact us, jockandnerd.com. Want to review the show? Give us a nice rating. Jockandnerd.com slash review. Basically, Jock and Nerd is your home for everything we fucking do. Yes, go there and you will see that you can find this show on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on TuneIn, on Player FM, on iHeartRadio, and on YouTube. Jock and Nerd! All those places. Take a breath. All those places. Whenever somebody says any of those, I want this to go off in your head. Jock and Nerd! Whenever somebody's like, hey, I'm on iTunes. Jock and Nerd! You should hear that and then you should tell the person... Hey, you should subscribe to the Jock and Nerd podcast. That's all. Tell a friend. Spread the word, Jock and Nerd. Anthony, thanks for uh, helping out with the interview of this episode. Uh, it was <laughs> hey, no problem, man. Yes. It was my pleasure. John Locke, I'm sure you were a pleasure to deal with. And after, I'm so happy I got to meet you. John Locke's great. Check out all his stuff. Thanks for listening, guys. This is the Jock and Nerd podcast. My name is Imran. My name's Anthony. He's the Jock. He's the nerd. We'll hear you next time.